consider remembering eternity. Remembering eternity. Over these past several weeks, we've gone through some of the core teaching of what the household of God is. And one of the ways that's flushed out, though not the only way, is by our assembling together. And I want you to understand that what you're contributing to and what you're participating to is an eternal thing. It's not a weekly thing to just be checked off, though it should be a weekly thing. But it's to extend, of course, into the uh, into all of life, the rest of your uh, uh, days, as well as Sunday. But it has eternal implications. It's a powerful thing. In March of 1985, Clive Waring, who is an eminent English musician and a professor of music in his mid-40s, developed a brain infection that affected especially the parts of his brain that are associated with memory. He was left with a memory span of literally a goldfish. Only seconds. It's the most devastating case of amnesia that's recorded, that we have recorded uh, in medical journals. New events that happened to him in experiences were almost instantly. His wife, Deborah, wrote in a 2005 memoir, Forever Today, she wrote this. His ability to perceive what he saw and heard was unimpaired. But he did not seem to be able to retain any impression of anything more than a blink. Indeed, if he did blink, his eyelids parted to reveal a new scene to him. The view before the blink was utterly forgotten. Each blink, or each glance away and then back again, brought him an entirely new world and view. She says, I tried to imagine how it was for him. Something akin to a film that seemed choppy. The glass half empty, then seeing it full. The cigarette that he smoked suddenly longer when he got a new one. Uh, his hair messed up, now combed. This was real life. It would seem to him like the room was changing in ways that we would seem to think would be physically impossible. That's how he was seeing life. He was filmed in 1986 for a documentary called Prisoner of Consciousness. And he showed, uh, a, as in his interview, a desperate aloneness, fear, and bewilderment. He was very keenly and continually and agonizingly conscious that something bizarre, something awful was the matter, but he didn't know what it was. His constant, re, constantly repeated complaint was not of a faulty memory, but of being deprived in some uncanny and terrible way of all experience and consciousness and life itself. His wife wrote, It was as if every waking moment was the first waking moment. Clive was under the constant impression that he had just emerged from consciousness because he had no evidence in his own mind of ever being awake before. He said, I haven't heard anything, seen anything, touched anything, smelled anything, he would say. It's like being dead. And so desperate to hold on to something, to gain some, some, uh, some, some traction in life, he started to keep a journal, first on scraps of paper, then in a notebook. 
But here's what his journal entries consisted of. I am awake. Or I am conscious. And he would enter this again and again every few minutes. He would write 2.10 p.m. This time properly awake. 2.14 p.m. This time finally awake. 2.35 p.m. This time completely awake. And then... At 9.40 p.m., I awoke for the first time despite my previous claims. This in turn was crossed out, followed by, I was fully conscious at 10.35 p.m. and awake for the first time in many, many weeks. And then canceled out by the next entry and so on. And you start to feel the frustration, don't you? This journal would, didn't have anything else written in it, void of any content, but these assertions and then these denials and and he, he's trying to, to get some kind of anchor for his soul, right? Some kind of continuity in, in, in his existence. It was terrifying. His Jesus' church can also be in a similar sad and dire state if we develop an eternity amnesia. There's an awakening that God gives us with the Gospel when we believe in awakening the New Testament writers call us to, an awakening to light that yanks the church out of its bed, that sets it on its feet, and then mobilizes it for the walk it's been summoned to. But what would it look like to have spiritual, eternal amnesia? Well, we will live with eternal amnesia, eternity amnesia, when we might live with unrealistic expectations. Asking the present world to, to, to be what it was never created to be. Not our final destination, never designed to satisfy us. Or it could be asking too much of people. We expect the people around us to provide paradise for our hearts. And asking them to give us what they cannot. That robs peace and it delivers frustration and conflict. Eternity amnesia can can result in us being controlling of our little worlds and fearful and unfulfilled longings because of unfounded, uh, wrong foundations that lead to insecurities and cause us to swing from between control freaks to neurotic warriors. It can cause us to doubt the goodness of God and have an unthankful spirit. Because if we eyes on eternal things, then there's only one other thing we're setting our eyes on, and it's the temporal things, and we, we think that's what this world is all about, and we'll never see God's promises uh, uh, experience. There's taste of God's gifts here, but the full beating is waiting in eternity, and we could forget that. It might exhibit itself in a lack of motivation and hope and a feeling of purposelessness. If your hope is in this world, if that's why you get up each morning, you're going to see an endless cycle of dashed dreams and fading hopes. But an eternal mindset gives you reason to continue, even when it seems like nothing is working. The world is not permanent. Eternity is forever. It could exhibit itself as living as if life didn't have consequences. Casting off God's Word and how we're to be and live and what we're to base our lives on. That's a sure sign of eternity amnesia, isn't it? There's good and bad consequences for our lives here and now. There's punishment. There's reward. There, that will be delivered at a day of reckoning that not one of us is going to be immune to. 
And there can be no apathy when we're faced with the reality of eternity and the impact of our lives on that. Hell is real. Heaven is real. And we're preparing for one or the other, right? It could exhibit itself in a lackadaisical attitude in cooperating with God's big mission through the church. And so Paul, in this incredible treatise on the church of Jesus Christ and what God has done to form His church and its mission, writes Ephesians 5, 15-21, to forge this eternity on our eyeballs, on our hearts, right after a section on light and darkness and living in your true place as no longer darkness but children of light. So he says this, See then, yet you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine, where is an excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Here's what Paul is saying in these verses here. Be careful how you live. You, first of all, have a mission with a commander. Do you know your mission? Understand what the will of the Lord is. Know it. You know, the Bible, the issue in the Bible is not, do you believe in God or not? Everyone believed in God's and Paul's day of some sort. The issue was, who is the only true living God? And if God is indeed the one true living God, there are profound implications for our life as He's included us in this great mission that He's doing from Genesis to Revelation. But what's God's mission according to Ephesians? What's the big picture? What's the walking and the redeeming the time and understanding the will of the Lord that He's laid out in this book? Well, in verses 15-17 through 17, He says this needs to be uh, 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 our lives need to be aligned with this and to take it seriously and see eternal things. Well, if you go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, you'll see what he's talking about. He's laid out God's lavish grace. And he says, Wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, here's God's purpose, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. He's uniting all things in Christ. It's why he says in chapter 1, verse 15 through 23, I pray that God opens your eyes to see the greatness of His power and uh, placing Christ above all things. In verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and above every name, and a neighbor named that is named not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. It's what he said in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, not of works, but by grace we've been saved and were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to good works to fill out this mission here. It's what he talks about in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, what God has done to reconcile, put, put uh, Jew and Gentile together to form his church. And then in chapter 3, 8 through 11, we saw a few weeks ago, Paul says his job is to, is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, 
which from the beginning of the world has been hidden in God, who created all things by Christ Jesus, to this purpose, to the intent, that now to the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he says in verse 21, To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And then, out of that, sit in that, he says. Stand in that, he says. And now in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, walk worthy of this vocation that you've been called to. At verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, uh, walk, testify, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you hereafter walk not as other Gentiles walk. In the vanity, the, the temporal, the lacking of eternal mindset in their own mind. And then in 5, 1 and 2, be therefore followers, imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also have loved us, and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. And then he starts to unfold what children of darkness versus children of light are. And that brings us to our text in verses uh, 15 through 21. I want you to look in verse 14 very quickly here, because right before he launches into, therefore, redeem the time, walk wisely, right? Understand what the will of the Lord. Right before that, he says this in verse 14. Ephesians 5, 14. Wherefore, he says, and he quotes from Isaiah 60, verse 1 and following, Awake ye that sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. He's quoting from Isaiah 60, and in Isaiah 60, 1 through 4, God is giving a future vision through Isaiah of a time when Jesus Christ reigns on this earth and, and things are restored and nations are reconciled in God again and come to Jerusalem as their capital. And, he, and he's picturing this beautiful scene here, the nations being reconciled to God again after he had disinherited them in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel and turned them over to darkness and, and they become his inheritance. And he says now in Ephesians 5, verse 15, in light of what God will do in God's promised plan to all the nations, with skill, walk carefully, know God's plan, go know God's mission, because you're children of light. You need light to know how to walk correctly, walk carefully. When I was a kid, we had a, a game, maybe some of you generation uh, um, X, Xers remember this game. Uh, it was called Oregon Trail. And um, you had to, uh, you had to uh, uh, maneuver your wagon train from uh, Independence, Missouri, all the way to uh, the destination in Oregon, in Oregon City. And there were lots of things along the way that could derail your, your journey there, as you imagined you were a pioneer. Cholera, or, or uh, lack of water, or eating bad food. But eventually, your, your, your wagon would get to a river and you'd have to either um, choose to use a ferry to get across and pay some money for it in this video game, or you would um, uh, have to try to ford it if it wasn't too, too deep. Um, but if you got on this raft, this ferry, there were things that would float down the river that you would have to dodge. And so you'd use your left and right button on the keyboard to dodge. This is, guys, this is before... Uh, Nintendo Switch and Xbox, so you just have to bear with me here. Um, and so we're, you're dodging some of the stuff floating down the river, logs and junk and stuff. And that's kind of the picture here of Paul saying, look carefully, be alert, 
some of you teens are doing driver's ed or will be doing driver's ed soon. And, um, and uh, when you first start drawing, driving, one of your te tendencies is to be really worried about the lines on the side of the road and you're looking left and right or you're looking just right in front of you and you have to look far ahead, right? Because you don't know what's coming down the road ahead if you're just looking like this. And Paul says, look far ahead, look into eternity here in these verses. With skill, walk carefully. And says, redeem the time, maximize your impact, the influence, the time available before the end comes in Isaiah 60. You're a co-worker with God. Press into God's mission here in Ephesians to show that He's the only true God. And we have a God with a mission. He will complete this mission. But one of the things we need to remember that we sometimes forget is that God's mission has always been God's before it becomes ours. God's been the one who's been doing things all along, from creation to eventually the new creation. Even back in Genesis, when he speaks to Adam and Eve, he gives them a mission to rule and care for the earth. And he gives Israel a mission to be the agent of God's blessing to all the nations, a light to the Gentiles. Jesus comes with a mission in Luke chapter 4 to, to, uh, to do uh, what, what Israel uh, failed to do and to bring blessing through bearing our sin on the cross and the resurrection. And he's given the church a mission in Matthew 28, 18-20 to go and make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them uh, to obey whatsoever Christ has, has given, to participate with God in this inheritance of the Gentiles, of the nations, Jew and Gentile here. Behind all this is God with a mission redeeming what he's created from the wreckage of what Satan has done and evil has done in this universe. And he's going to complete this mission. Read the last two chapters of the Bible, right? And so when we're called to participate in this, we got a God who's already been working. But he calls us to be co-laborers with him. And we, in the phrase of Paul, are co-workers with God. What I want you to understand, it's not so much that God has a mission for His church in this world, it's that God has a mission for the church. God has, 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 has a mission, uh, the, the church was made for this particular task here. Participating with God as He brings us to a, to a climax here. You see, this whole earth, every square inch, belongs to Jesus, doesn't it? Satan is the false god of this world. He's the imposter. We're not to give place to the devil. We're to conquer what, in Jesus' name, what uh, the devil has deceptively tried to take. And God has authorized us to do that. And so, when we understand that God is behind all this, and these priorities in Ephesians 5, 15-21, we don't ask ourselves, where does God fit in the story of my life? We ask ourselves, where does my little life fit into God's great mission and His greatness? We don't drive our lives by something that's just been tailored just right for us as individuals. Rather, we're wrapped up in what God is doing. We don't simply apply the Bible to our lives. We apply our lives to the Bible. And there is a difference. 
The Bible is the truth. It is the reality to which God has called us to conform ourselves. We saw in Romans 12, 1 and 2 as we renew our minds. God is about the business of transforming this world through the gospel of Jesus Christ to look like Christ and we're to participate in that. And so God's purpose, His mission, our mission, His priorities need to be our priorities. And so we have a mission. Do you know what that mission is? To go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. To redeem the time. Secondly, in verse 18, notice he says, but be filled with the Spirit. second thing I want you to see is this. God has not left His soldiers with a mission without a supply. Without a supply. He does not leave us without an eternal supply. The very God, the Spirit, that second person, uh, uh, that, that third person of the Trinity, dwells within us, God Himself. You have a supply. So the second point in verse 18 is get to the power station. Get to the power station. Notice he says, be filled with the Spirit and not be drunk with wine wherein is excess. How do you know when someone's drunk? How do you know when you see a guy walking down the street and you're like, that guy's inebriated. They're drunk. What's, what's, uh, what's indicative of that? Stumbling, right? Lack of purpose, incoherent. Okay? Can't put things together. Obviously, he is controlled by something where he is not acting normally. And so God's supply in Ephesians 5.18 is that you are filled with God Himself. You are under His control. You are walking according to His influence. You are under His influence in the most uh, full way. You're controlled by the death and resurrection of Jesus. You die daily, as Paul says. You live to righteousness, the resurrection life, Paul says, the true life inside of us. And so the cross of Jesus Christ here in Ephesians 5.18, being filled with the Spirit, is what has enabled us to march in God's mission. To die and to live for Him. Because when we engage in God's great work, you know what you're confronting? You know what you are engaging in? The powers of evil in the kingdom of Satan. That's what you're engaging in. That's why you need chapter 5, verse 18. If God's given us a mission and we need to be honed in on that mission, verses 15 through 17, the only way you are going and I are going to do this is by being under God's control. And so Paul shows God's provision. You have a supply. Get to the power station. Get to the power station. This is your authority as well. This is the basis that you and I, mere mortal, weak, frail, feeble creatures, can challenge the chains of Satan and the authority of the Son in people's lives. It's the cross and the resurrection. There is no other power, no other resource, no other name under heaven through which we can offer Jesus good news to the person in the world than Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. And then finally, you say, well, it sounds like a big task and it's just me. And you're deceiving yourselves. Because chapter 5, verse 19 through 21 says, 
It's a team effort. It's a team effort. It's not you and you going out as a vigilante, a mercenary. You are part of an army. You are part of a team. And look what he says in Ephesians 5, uh, 19 through 21. He says, here's the result of a spirit-filled life. Notice the I-N-G words. Be filled with the Spirit. Then he says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting ourselves to one another in the fear of God, and then he gets into the individual family life. Notice, though, there's the one another's, there's the ye, that's you all, this is plurals, this is community life. It is engaging and building up the church into a beautiful witnessing community. And he lists some practices that are key to show God's transforming work among us. That God is alive in us. Things that you will never grow into by yourself. You need others to pour these things into and to pour these things into you simultaneously. Practices that are key. Remember what he said in chapter 4, 15 and 16? Speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted or held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the effective working and the measure of every part, makes increase of the body to the edifying of itself in love. So there is speaking. You can only edify, you can only upbuild as you edify the body with your gifts and resources. Speaking, speaking to yourselves in what? Psalms. What are, what are psalms? Psalms are scripture here. The, the singing and, and quoting scripture has the longest shelf life. You're pretty safe if you do that, right? That lasts a long time. Hymns. This is my opinion on, on these three categories. Some say there's no difference between the three. Some say there is a progression here from the, the, uh, the, the, the longest lasting to the, to the lowest, uh, the, the shortest here. What I mean by that is that Psalms have the longest shelf life. Hymns. There's hymns in the Bible. Philippians 2. Many people believe is a hymn about Jesus uh, who left heaven's glory to be a servant. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.16. The, 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 uh, the description of, of the gospel there. Believe it, many people believe that's a creed. A, 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 the creeds of our faith. The, short, summarized truths of our faith that they would sing in the early church. These have a long shelf life, right? A mighty fortress is our God. That's had a long shelf life. Been singing it for 500 years now. Has a long shelf life because it's, it's, it, is, it is articulating classic Christian truths. And then the third category is Spiritual songs are songs relating to the influence of the Holy Spirit. I tend to see these as less established, more for a certain time. Some of you have had songs uh, in your generation, in your day, that have spoken, ministered to your heart and your heart language. But they may not be as effective in other generations before or after you. But the Holy Spirit brought them across to plant truths in your minds here. Okay? They're shorter. They're fresh new creations. They should have a shorter shelf life. He says, speaking yourselves in these things. And then he says, singing 
and making merry in your heart to the Lord. The idea of singing and making merry is the idea of singing praise from the heart to God. So there's, there's notice. Speaking psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. That's a horizontal level, isn't it? Truths about God to one another. When we sing, we are singing to one another and reinforcing and teaching one another truths about God. But there's also the truth that as we do that, we need to be singing and making melody, making merry, making praise in our hearts, coming from the heart to God. Here's our audience as well. And sometimes we forget both audiences. We can just think we're just doing it for each other, or we can think we're just doing it for God. The truth is, it's both ways here. It's both ways, vertically and horizontally, that we are to engage. This is a part of the life, community life. We're to engage, whether you're musical or not. We're to engage. By the way, isn't it good for those of us who can't sing? He says, speaking to yourselves, right? So, you know, that's you don't have to necessarily carry a tune. And notice what he says in the next verse, doing it from the heart <laughs> to the Lord there. That's, that's key. That's important. Uh, singing praise in the heart to the Lord. Because what you're doing, when you are engaging in these practices of community life, you are reminding each other of the big promise plan and mission of God. That God has invited all the peoples of the earth to hear the music of God's future. Of what he has done in the past at the cross and creation. And what he will do in the future to bring a family together and join him. You're reminding each other, not only of the theology, the truths about God and what he's done, but the task, the goal, the purpose, inviting all the peoples of the earth to hear the music of God. And live our lives in accordance with that music. And then notice what else he says. Well, why did he have to say this? Giving thanks in all things always to God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you're not going to get the import of the power of that truth until you understand Ephesians 1 through 3 of what God has done. To the praise of His glory and grace. That's why I can give thanks in all things always. That's living as children of light. That's why I can have a thankful spirit. Because I relate all things that come to me down to me, from the Father who is the good giver of all things, through the authority of Jesus Christ, and I'm united to His Son. That's very important in community life. Because our tendency can be to just be thinking about me. Right? To have grumbling hearts. But God says, thanking by relating all things that come down to me are from the Father through the authority of Christ. Give me thanks always for all things. And then the last part. If I have a thankful spirit, then this can happen. Look at verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. What in the world is he saying there? 
Well, a life filled with the Spirit under the control of God, sold out for His mission as, 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 uh, as, as you have a team together, training together, the result of filling of the Spirit, you're speaking to yourselves in these things, you're singing praise, you're relating all things and being thankful uh, for them in light of uh, our God and understanding that what happens to me is, is better than what I deserve. Then there is a submission, a sacrificing, a serving here to one another. I submit myself to you. You submit yourself to each other. You die to self and you live for others. And that's why the next verse, with wives to their husbands, that's not a surprise to them. Because it's already part of the community life. And notice, men, it says submitting to one another. So we're part of this submission to one another as well. Dying to self and living for others. Why? Because Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, has said this, that we're to walk worthy of this vocation you're called. And then he says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit. And he goes through all the one things that we have in common. It's what Paul has said in the next book, Philippians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 3, If there therefore be any hope, any consolation, any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels or compassions and mercies, to fill you my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. This comes only through submitting yourselves to Christ and to one another. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, pride. And the emptiness of pride is what that means. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem, so there's a right thinking that needs to happen about with, with each of us, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There's a right thinking here, a right estimation of who I am, and who others are as restored image bearers of Christ as a team here. And then a submitting myself to them, a serving, a dying to self and living for, to serve others. So when we know our mission, we align our lives with the urgency of eternity according to it. And we come under the Spirit's supply by feeding on His on, on the Word of Christ. And we train together as a team in community life. We walk in the light and not the darkness of self. And we're co-laborers with the one true living God. And so we've apostles' doctrine. That Christ has a church as a centerpiece of His plan. That He has built church family and then individual families. Reminded last week of an excellent message from Verge Champion about the truth that this adorns, this makes the, the doctrine of God beautiful. Shows how beautiful it is. And so the question comes now, what adjustments do you need to make? A better grasp of this plan in the scriptures. Study the word. A serious look at your life priorities and your time. Uh Commitment to your family's spiritual growth and your leadership in that. Examining your commitment to this local body and your serving gifts. Taking more advantage of divine appointments that God gives you to witness or help others grow. 
a blazing look at eternity's values and the fleeting vapor of time left before he returns. We only get one life shot at this. There's not reruns here. And the good news, it is never too late to return to eternity's vision. So we'll follow His Word. We'll apply our lives to His plan for the sake of His name and the reward of Christ's suffering at the cross. We buy back the time because the days are evil. And we shine as lights in a dark world. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for the uh, medium of your, of your Word, the truth. I thank You, You have been so kind to lay out Your plan and will for us. Help us to be united with Your cause, or to live out the, the uniting that's happened through the Gospel. Live that out. You've already done it through Jesus. Help us now to walk in that, walk worthy of this vocation. Understand we have a mission. Know what that mission is. To help make disciples. To see all things put under your feet, Ephesians says. To engage in that. In our homes, in our families, in our work. In our life together as a community. I pray that you would um, help us to take the initiative to learn each other's stories of how God's brought them to the place that they're at. Uh, to learn how you've been faithful in the decades and decades of lives that are represented here, young and old. To hear stories of faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would help us to pray together as a church. If we're going to accomplish this task and we're going to be under your control, it requires that we be praying with each other. And help us to figure out ways to do that with our, each of our own schedules and each of our own um, uh, lives and responsibilities. Lord, help us to make that a priority. And Lord, I pray that you would um, uh, do what you desire to do as we, you promise to do as we obey these verses here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the past couple weeks, I have mentioned the um, importance of praying together and understanding that uh, Wednesday at 7 p.m. doesn't work for everybody and wondering if you uh, would um, figure out what would work for you and what your next step would be in order to pray with other believers here because our source and our power and our cause is worthy of praying together for and so if you're wondering what a next step for that would be, please let me know you're interested in saying, I want to pray with other folks and get a hold of me and I'll try to connect you with other people where we can talk through this together of what it would mean to pray with other believers in your church. Because I think it's so key and so crucial. And this is just one aspect here of the community life. Um, it was a great privilege last week to worship together and hear that wonderful message for Birch, but one of the true blessings of that day was another individual who said, hey, I need you and you to come with me right now 
and pray for me this week. There's some things that I'm going to face. I know my own weakness. I know my susceptibilities. And I need to know that I have two guys with me right now who are going to be in prayer for me this week for particular susceptibilities. And then this Friday, uh, again, being able to reconvene and pray together with um, some of the some of the young men in this church who sought that out. That's a powerful thing. Because no man is an island. And guys, man, I'm speaking to you. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. We do a horrible job of having friends. Real friends. And bands of brothers. And we need to set the example in that. And so if there's not men that you have a relationship with that you, you, you can pray with, you can call upon, hey, let's work on that. Let's find men who will do that. And men, if that's something that you know the Lord is putting on your heart, boy, I need to do this not just because feel, I'm feeling guilty about it, but because I know this is, this is critical for my growth. And guys, let's put together groups of men who will pray together. Ladies, Guys, we can, do a, we can do a better job of watching our kids so our ladies can get together, our wives can get together and talk to other ladies and encourage each other and pray together. And so I just want to leave you with that little challenge here as kind of your next step of community life. Um, it kind of gets done in prayer meeting, um, but it's always different every week. I think there are a group of people that you should be meeting with regularly that you have developed a trust relationship with, and obviously that's going to take work, but that you are growing together and you got each other's backs. Because as we saw today in Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, life's short. We've got to make our lives count. He's worthy. He's worthy. And he has shed his grace.